Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun. On three occasions. I don't well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure, not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the neck to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? Welcome back to the final episode of I Foresee Trouble with Daily Wallace and O'Riordan. This is the final episode before the break of Parliament this summer and... We're going to talk a bit about defence and the war in Ukraine that rages on. It's been about five months and it's... Yeah, pretty depressing all around that we're breaking for summer and there are still people even today sending around letters to all the MEPs looking for support for yet another sanctions package, even though it's now becoming apparent to everybody the points that we were making all along, that the sanctions are really only going to hurt the people of ordinary people of Europe uh, outside of Russia and inside Russia, but particularly outside of Russia and obviously hurt the people of Ukraine as well, because it certainly isn't helping them. All it's doing in terms of piling in the extra arms end of it is prolonging the war. But yet there's still people in here clamoring for more of the same. So... I think the media has begun to pick up on this idea that we're on the cusp of an economic catastrophe in Europe in this scenario as we begin to get into summer and look to the autumn, the likelihood of Russia um, uh, ending or slowing down in a much more dramatic way, the supplies of gas to Europe and the economic consequences of that are going to be devastating. And so defence and military spending is on the rise and the recent increase of spending in Ireland on defence up to 1.5 billion. What do you think about that, Mick? Yeah, um, look at it, of course, it's, it's incredibly disappointing. Um, I mean, the, the Irish defence spend, I think at the moment, is just somewhere just below 1.1 billion. And they're planning on rising it to 1.5 billion over a period. Um, I mean... You know, there's there's there different um, excuses for it. I mean, um, they're saying that there's opportunities to develop our defence capabilities and joint procurement uh, offered by participation in PESCO and the European Defence Agency. Uh, and people might have noticed there, uh, I think it was only in the last week or two, that um, Minister Coveney had a proposal in for the Defence Forces to join another four new PESCO projects, something that we should have absolutely nothing to do, do with. Now, uh, what, what we are seeing is that Ireland is linking itself in to some of these Euro projects that have, that have links to NATO as well. And that's really scary. Everyone knows at home the major vast majority of Irish people don't want to have anything to do with the war machine that's called NATO. But sadly, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael would be very happy to join it. And Michal Martin was out at the summit in Madrid as, as a sort of a bystander, I mean, causing up to NATO. And what we're doing now is we're uh, giving in to the, to the challenge that NATO puts up that you must spend more on arms. 
NATO always says that uh, every European state in NATO should be spending at least 2% of their GDP on arms. Now, if Ireland were to do that, we'd be spending somewhere in the region of 6 billion. Now, it's bad enough... Uh, Increasing it uh, from 1.1 billion to 1.5. But can you imagine going up to the 2% of GDP point? And this is at a time where uh, over half the people of Ireland are struggling to make ends meet. And uh, we have a housing crisis for over 10 years. We have a homelessness crisis. And now we're going to buy uh, new machinery. And they're saying that they're, they want to build on the current capability to address specific, specific priority gaps in our ability to deal with an assault on Irish sovereignty and, and to serve in higher intensity peace support. Now, higher intensity peace support, that sounds very peaceful. Sounds a bit like the European peace facility sounds peaceful, but European peace facility is pumping arms into Ukraine at the moment. And uh, for Ireland to be able to play a role in higher intensive peace support. I would reckon that this is a, a sort of a, a way into Ireland actually being able to put up uh, force, defence forces personnel for the Rapid Reaction Force. Hmm. That be, and that's scary. I mean, this the Rapid Reaction Force is where you act first and think later and it causes nothing only trouble. It's absolute lunacy for Europe to be going down this path. But they've been driven down this by uh, the influence and the pressure and the lobbying of the US-NATO uh, agenda. The US-NATO uh, is literally, as far as I can see, are calling all the big decisions now in the European Union. And European, the European Union is behaving like an absolute puppet. Well, it's a deep irony that they talk about attacks defending ourselves from attacks on our sovereignty when the biggest attack on our sovereignty is our own um, knee-bending, neoliberal pro-Atlanticist leadership of successive governments who've just abandoned any sense of sovereignty and independence and who have just absolutely towed the uh, US and NATO line. And there's a total hypocrisy in it that they'd say, oh God, no, Jeannie, we don't want anything to do with NATO. But I mean, I think you're right, Mick, they're lining everything up to facilitate an easier access for Ireland into a lot of these EU projects. And we hear it at every security and defence meeting it's all about checkbooks. Like a lot of the meetings now are being held behind closed doors, but it's all about the money. It's all about the industry. It's all about the arms companies. And it's very clear now that these are the ones leading the way. And rather than stand up to, to that and be a pole of attraction and a voice for peace in the world and in Europe, because most citizens in Europe want peace, but certainly a majority of the world's countries are not involved in this conflict and would be happy to see peace. Ireland has gone along to try and be the best EU bullies in class, which is pretty pathetic in terms of uh, our history, really, you know. And I suppose on the point of NATO yesterday, the, there was a joint security and defence subcommittee meeting with uh, the Foreign Affairs Committee where the Secretary General John Stoltenberg was in addressing the Parliament about uh, the Madrid summit. And I was wondering what you had to say about his address to the Parliament, Mick. Well, um, it was great to get speaking time uh, with the boss of NATO. Uh, Stoltenberg has been the boss for, for a few years now. And um, he's a bit on the arrogant side. Um but, I mean, I'd say he's never had it so good. There's never been as much support for NATO as mm. there is of late. And it's all pure madness. And uh, he is 
blatant about the need. Uh, I mean, they want more war. They can't get enough of it. Yeah. And uh, he, he, he admitted that NATO were lobbying and pressuring for member states to increase the supply of modern equipment to Ukraine. And they're admitting they don't want this war to end until Ukraine has won it. But, I mean, it doesn't seem to matter how many Ukrainians die in the meantime. It doesn't seem to matter the impact that it's going to have on the cost of living all across Europe. It doesn't seem to matter the impact it's going to have on the food crisis, uh, where people are literally going to starve in the global south because... uh, Food supplies have been interrupted. And it isn't all just because that the Russians uh, started a war. It's also due to sanctions. And that's the truth. And they can lie all they like about it and pretend that the sanctions have nothing to do with the food crisis, but they have. But listen, listen to your man yesterday. I mean, I I got a few minutes to to challenge him. And I actually challenged him on some of his statements from the Madrid summit, which Michal Martin had been at. And... One of the things they said was that uh, China, China's stated ambitions and coercive policies challenge our interest, our security and our values. So I put it to him. Our interest, I said. I said, they're our biggest trading partner. We buy loads of stuff from China and the Chinese buy loads of stuff from us. I said, is it not in our interest to be doing business with them? I said, how would you like it, I said, if the Chinese stopped buying manufacturing goods uh, from Russia, from Germany? The Chinese buy more manufactured goods from Germany than anyone else on the planet. Uh, probably more than nearly, nearly as much as the rest of the world put together. I said, how would you like it if the Chinese stopped buying German cars? I said, Can you, uh, have you thought about the impact, I said, on jobs in Germany and on business interest in Germany? I said, if the Chinese stop purchasing uh, German-made goods. Now, he didn't answer that part, right? Mm. Uh, so then I, I, asked, I said, security, I said. You're telling us that China's a threat to the security of the people of Europe? How is it, I said? They haven't dropped a bomb on anyone in 40 years. There's no, German, there's no uh, Chinese warships uh, off the coast of Europe. There's no, no bombers flying overhead. Well, how are they a threat to our security? It doesn't make sense. I said, where's the evidence, I said. Now, he didn't give me any either. When he started, uh, in, in his reply, he was going on about uh, Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. I mean, it is the China, South China Sea. It isn't the South uh, American Sea or the South... The North Atlantic uh, the, Gulf, the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. right? And then I said, values, I said. And I, I, I said, I referred back to the previous day where we actually had... Uh, the, the head of the European External Action Service, which would be the, uh, the European Union's equivalent of NATO, right? And uh, he was in, right? Uh, Stefano Sanino, right? And I put, it, I put it to him about his nonsense, us fighting with the Chinese. And he said, okay, if you're talking about the Chinese, and I'll quote him, he says, so, it, the Chinese, it is a model. Then we can decide whether we want to live in that model or in our model. That if we want to continue living in our model, then we have to stand up to the challenge that China is posing to us at this stage. Now, mother of God. And, and I read this out to Stalinberg, the head of NATO. And I said, what about the idea I said that we keep our model and our values if we think they're good and let them keep theirs? <laughs> I said, why should they behave like us just because we think that we're right? 
is, is there only one truth? Hmm. Who are we? How arrogant of us to think that we're the ones with the truth. Hmm. We're the ones with the values that count. The Chinese culture is thousands of years old. Are you saying that the Chinese know nothing? Hmm. I mean, it doesn't make sense like. But what it is, is we are intolerable of other cultures. We're used to being colonialists. And we're still behaving like colonialists where we'll teach us, we'll bring us God and we'll bring us uh, civilization and we'll get rid of your barbaric ways. What's happening today with the, the anti-China rhetoric and the Rus- anti-Russian rhetoric as well that went on before the war is a, a lack of tolerance for other cultures. Mm, well, it's very much linked to colonialist history because if you even look at societies like India, which is obviously one of the world's most populous countries and India's history and culture was far superior to that, say, of the UK at a certain stage, but it was guns and weapons that came in that sort of was the beginning of the end for India as we know it now and which led to sort of British colonialism. And it's guns and arms that are at the back of a lot of this and the selling and production of these weapons. And if you make weapons, you've got to have a market to sell them. And it is interesting that NATO now is expanding its reach to every continent. It's active in in, uh, Africa, as you say, Mick, they're talking about China. But the mantra in all of this is we need arms, we need new arms, we need modern arms and we need Western arms. And we've heard Zelensky say this and then the puppets in the Western media repeat that and say Western weapons are now having an impact. That's not true. Western weapons will not stop the Soviet onslaught in this war. It will put damage on Russia for sure, but it won't win back territories that that uh, uh, Ukraine has lost. It will only ensure further destruction in Ukraine and further loss of life. But one of the more interesting things coming out about it was the emergence now of the stories about a lot of those arms ending up on the black market and the dark web and being sold back to Europe. So really serious weaponry. And we warned at meetings earlier on in this war who was monitoring where the weapons were going, that these are going to come back to bite Europe. And Europol itself, which let's face it, is not exactly great, but the European coordinated uh, police services have warned about where these weapons are going and about a blowback in Europe, which I think is incredibly dangerous. And, you know, when we see this stuff for sale back, this is where we're going. And it's not helping anybody in Ukraine because these weapons can't stop the war. And instead, so when Michal Martin says, we stand with Ukraine, we want the war to go on, how the hell is that supporting Ukraine? You're only sending them to their slaughter and expecting them to be puppets in a war that's nothing to do with them, really, you know? I found it disgusting to see Michal Martin going to Kiev Mm. and to, to buy into the whole NATO uh, U.S. imperialism line and supporting an ongoing war, an endless war. And remember, you sh- people at home, you should remind your Fianna Fáil and, and Fine Gael politicians at home who supported pouring all the arms they could find into Ukraine. There was boxes of guns opened on the streets of Kiev and you didn't have to sign for the gun. I mean, where are they going to end up, these guns? I mean, it's scary. And... Uh, Loads of these people are coming to Europe. Are they bringing the guns with them? Hmm. I mean, what's going to happen uh, when eventually, if there's ever an end to the war, 
uh, what's going to happen to all these guns but, that no one even had to sign for? life is negligible for them. Yeah, no, they don't care about people. They don't care about anybody in Ukraine. They millions displaced. The thousands who are dead. They just want more of them to die because the war games are ongoing and the mar- their market for them is booming. But it is getting to a critical stage economically now. It really is. And I, I think the tide is beginning to turn that people must be saying, God almighty, why are we sacrificing our living standards and the lives of Ukrainians to fight a war for America and NATO? And it's if, if, but it's, even in the parliament, right, there's MEPs who are buying the NATO US line, hook, line and sinker. And they're actually salivating over the prospect of, a, of an endless proxy war mm. between the West and Russia and eventually maybe China. They are getting high on it. Yeah, and yeah. The, the impact that this is going to have on ordinary citizens, not to mention the tens of thousands that are going to die in Ukraine, it is just shocking. It's even evident, though, um, there was a recent article in an opinion piece in the Irish Times by Jeffrey Roberts, a history professor from UCC, where he talks about the war being more being unwinnable and how there is no end in prospect. And he kind of provides a unique historic perspective about how things are just looking bleaker and bleaker, which is quite Interesting to see in Irish media a perspective that's quite bleak and bleak about the war. Even a 21-year-old from Cork can see that this is an unusual article for the Irish media. (laughs) Yeah, so it's certainly interesting to get this different perspective Basically, well, about I would say it's our perspective. I mean, somebody wrote to me and said, "Is that she in disguise? Did she write that article?" I think the only surprising thing about it is that it managed to get onto the pages yeah. of the Irish Times, and it's very, to very see welcome. An academic speaking but, about what you've been saying. Well, it's great that he is speaking now. Uh, I'd imagine maybe he was speaking about it in February, and no one was listening to him. But it's great that his his views have got on the pages of of the Irish Times now, five months into the war. But really, he is saying what we've been saying is that Ukraine can't win this war. And that's something that we don't take any joy in saying. But it's just a practical question. It's just not possible. And the longer it goes on, the more territory Russia will seize. And the only role the international community could ever have played was to get them all around the table. I'll just read you a short quote from the article. It's a powerful article by Jeffrey Roberts. A powerful article. And uh, I would say fair play to the opinion section uh, in the Irish Times for printing it. But uh, just to quote, he says, instead of pouring arms into a losing battle, Western states should be encouraging and assisting Ukraine to secure a ceasefire and peace deal that would safeguard its future freedom and independence. Instead of fighting a proxy war with Russia, the West should be using its morale, its moral and material might to extract concessions from Putin that would get Ukraine the best deal possible. Realistically, there'll be no ceasefire or peace agreement until Putin's armed forces have completed their military operations in southern eastern Ukraine. But Zelensky and his Western backers may be able to bring forward the end of hostilities by seeking an immediate resumption of peace talks. But sadly, the powers that be in Europe and in the US and in NATO, they don't want peace. And that's really sad. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think the media have played a huge role in this because they haven't allowed a space for a rational dialogue on the situation and they haven't accurately reflected this war. 
I mean, who ever heard of any other war where people, the answer to it was pile in more weapons? That has never happened. No other war has been characterised by we support Iraq, we support Iraq, we support Afghanistan. Nobody did that or wore flags. What they said was, was stop the war because that was the way of helping people in this. And we even had it in the parliament, very leading Polish um MEP came up to us last week on this very topic and he's saying, but the point is, is that are you going to stand by and allow Ukraine to defend itself? They need modern Western weapons. And we had a bit of an exchange in the chamber, but he came up to us afterwards uh, to talk to us, very senior former government member in uh, Poland. And one of these things we said, the weapons are having an impact No, they're not. But, you know, they're not going to defeat Russia. They might land a few blows on Russia. And some of the Poles seem to think that's great. Oh, we've killed a few Russians. But it's only going to mean the war going on. And one of these examples again was, now look at, if you see somebody being raped, you know, are you just going to walk by and do nothing? And like what we said... No, clearly not. But we're not going to hand them uh, a can of mace and say, there you are now, fight back with that. Or we're not going to pull the fella off and start raping him. Like, I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. You're going to pull them apart and try and sort it out, basically get justice for the victim and go after the perpetrator. That's what a normal person would do. But they think, no, the fight must go on at every end. It's just mental stuff. Like, But even on this militarization as... Not a solution, but um, fighting back Russia. There's been such talk about weapons and weaponization that humanitarianism and like the aid and food for people in Ukraine. There's been that's been very little in the conversation, and even pushes to get education programs or refugee camps and like fund those projects that actually help people on the ground. That's all been in the shadows besides the weaponization talks and the funding of arms into Ukraine. I think Ukraine. any humanitarian programmes that I've seen have been generally rooted on partly the correct response of allowing refugees escape to Europe and all of that. But one of the reasons why Europe did that was basically to allow the war to continue in some ways because you can't hold people up, like lock them in while they're being bombarded. You have to allow them out And for them to want the war to continue in the way you have to allow them out, even though not everybody uh, got out or is getting out or anything uh, like that, you know. But, I mean, a talk of rebuilding Ukraine at the moment, which they do talk about, and they very much talk about it in the context of Ukraine being linked with the EU and that being a benefit for the EU. But this is really dangerous territory and it's kind of linked in with the situation that we see now in Macedonia, where recently... Um, and it obviously hasn't got on the radar at all. But for about 10 nights on a row now, there have been demonstrations of about 50,000 people on the streets of the capital of Macedonia, sparked by the uh, efforts of their government to begin the discussions about amalgamation into the European Union. And, you know, we are in touch with the left party there. Um, they've been very involved in the protests, as have a lot of ordinary people there. And the basic point is that Bulgaria, there's a, I suppose, um, ethnic nationalist conflict between Macedonia and um, Bulgaria. There are minorities in both of those regions. The Bulgarians had been blocking the accession of North Macedonia, as they call it now. That's a whole other argument for how the name was changed into membership of the EU. And. Um, 
And the French presidency came up with a deal, basically, where the, which the Bulgarians accepted, where they said, OK, Macedonia can, North Macedonia can join, but they have to accept that uh, there's a Bulgarian minority in their um, country and there are language issues as well. They have to accept that their language kind of came from Bulgarian. Now, there's a huge uproar against that. But one of the key reasons why the people are protesting is because they don't want to be brought near or to NATO. It's not that they don't want relations with the EU, but they don't want to have to choose. And they've seen what's been happened. And the rumours and the stories are because there were increasingly um, violent, I suppose, the protests. And there was a lot of talk amongst people of the CIA sending in agent provocateurs to provoke violence in the uh, protests in order to facilitate uh, a clampdown and to portray those protesting as ultra-nationalists and fascists when actually these are the people fighting those who linked in with fascists. So again, you can see that this patchwork quilt of former Soviet states is being used to undermine, destabilise again the whole of Europe. And this is part of it as well, these accession states, as they're called, but very, very significant movements. I haven't seen anything on RTE or anywhere else actually in the main European news about this. Well, I attended um, two sessions, uh, one this morning and one yesterday on this issue. Yesterday, uh, there's a report being done on Georgia, right? And there's actually a mission to Georgia next week, right? Um, but... As you know, when the the council, at, at the advice of the commission, announced that Ukraine and Moldova would be granted accession status, in other words, that, that, that they were going to be allowed to join the queue, right? And that they were being deemed uh, fit for consideration for entry. Not fit for entry, but fit for consideration for entry. Um, so there were people going mad that Georgia weren't included. Now... Is there rule of law issues in Georgia? There is. Is there corruption issues in Georgia? There is. Is there judiciary problems and is there uh, political influence in the judiciary? There is. Uh, but they're probably not near as bad as what's going on in Ukraine. As the European Court of Auditors showed in their report last September, Ukraine uh, is one of the most corrupt countries in the whole of Europe. More corrupt than, Bulgar than Bulgaria or uh, um, Georgia. Um, but yet we've turned a blind eye to that and one of the sins of Georgia was that they actually decided not to take sides uh, on the sanctions or in, with the war they said they were staying out of it mm. and, but they said they weren't going to they, were, they weren't going to uh, play the game of the sanctions against Russia uh, but they weren't going to uh, take sides with Russia either um, but and they also said that they wouldn't be used, they weren't going to let them allow their country to be used for other people, for other countries to circumvent the sanctions that were being introduced. So they were, they were playing it straight, but they're actually being criticised for not being anti-Russian enough, mm. right? And, uh, but it was actually put by a couple of MEPs that, you know what now? And I got a chance to speak on it as well, but uh, ostracising Georgia for not being anti-Russian enough, 
is actually a bit of a stupid stupid thing for the EU to do. And they've kind of divided these three countries now that were considered to be in the same pot. Ukraine and Moldova and Georgia were considered to be on the kind of the same level, even though Ukraine was considered the most corrupt of the three and probably is. But they've separated them now because of Georgia's attitude to the war. And this morning we were discussing Albania and they were telling us why Albania still hasn't even got on the list for accession. And, and Albania has been looking for it for about 20 years, right? And they were explaining to us why it happened, right? And they were talking about corruption, which exists as well, and they were talking about political influence, but they also said they'll have to change the government. There's a problem with the government. And if they want to get into the European Union, they're going to have to vote different. Mm. Now, they're more or less saying the same about Georgia, that... There's problems with the government as well, they said about Georgia. And I said to them, look what I said. Uh, and the EU have blocked some uh, money that was going to Georgia because of rule of law issues that were supposed to be addressed and they weren't addressed by the, by the Georgians. And I said to them, you know what? You did right. Don't give them money until... Uh, if he's promising them money to do certain things and they don't do it, so they don't give it to them. But I said, uh, there's... You have no problem. You get 15 billion, I said, to Ukraine since 2015. And the European Court of Auditors couldn't even find where the money went. The oligarchs and state officials and politicians took it, most of it, and it didn't go to where it was supposed to go. And you're giving them accession. And now Albania is not deemed fit enough either. And the idea that Albania, Albania, I'm sure, has other, all these issues, but they're the worst than Ukraine. I doubt it. Well, not even at the worst in Ukraine, but I mean, let's look inside our own fold first, because this is the brass neck of the European Union election, everyone else outside its um, borders. But the truth is, is that they have weaponized rule of law and human rights. And it's basically now a measure of are you for or are you against Russia? And we made that point before about Bulgaria are Poland and Hungary being the bold boys in the European rule of law cla- class. And there's no doubt about it. There's some awful backwards anti-fundamental rights stuff uh, goes on in both of those countries. But the tune has changed towards Poland because they've got on board in the war against Russia. Uh, but Hungary hasn't. So therefore, all the restrictions on stopping funding and so on to Poland have been lifted, but they've been kept for Hungary. But then you look at other things, and we had the affront today of having Skinas, Commissioner Skinas from Greece in, and he's the commissioner whose job is to promote promote European values. Christ almighty. Now, as somebody said to him, well, the Charter of Fundamental Rights is supposed to be what European values are, international law, international human rights. And you and your government basically have been involved in pushbacks on the Greek border, basically murdering people. And you've done nothing about it. And his, I mean, people should watch it. It was a, a performance in statecraft. I just said to the lads around me at the end, this is the reason why this guy is in the job. He didn't answer a single question when he was asked about pushbacks, which is denying people the right to seek asylum on the borders of Europe. He just keeps talking about smugglers, which, of course, is a problem with smugglers. But he doesn't say that there are authoritarian regimes weaponizing migrants. But of course, the reason why there's migrants isn't because, you know, authoritarian regimes brought them there or because of smugglers. It's because there are desperate people fleeing wars and conflict and climate change and so on. And yes, absolutely, they are being abused by smugglers. And in many instances, regimes like Turkey and Belarus use them as well to slap the European Union down. 
But the European Union still has a legal obligation to accept people on its borders. And we said, he said, what continent has done more than Europe? I'm kind of saying, what continent has done less? Like most of the migrants are in from Afghanistan, for example, in Iran and in Pakistan. Most migrants and refugees are in Africa and are in Asia, are in South America. They're not in fecking Europe anyway. Only a tiny minority of them get through because European policy is to keep them away. And this is the guy who promotes European values. We're in a fight against smugglers. And when I pointed out to him that actually it's the migrants themselves who are being uh, criminalised as smugglers he just didn't want to know you could remind them that there is actually 3.6 million afghan refugees in iran today and are we are we prepared to give iran its sanctions there's 1.6 million refugees in lebanon a country with less than 4 million people a country with a population less than the size of Ireland and they have 1.6 million refugees and he's telling us that Europe are, are the best buys in the class in accommodating refugees and migrants. You reminded me of a, another session we had this morning on Libya and it was scary. Yeah. I, I, I listened to an MEP tell us that the, that the EU needs to give more money uh, to the ship's and to the Libyan Coast Guard, who are a crowd of criminals, in order to make sure that less migrants cross the Mediterranean. And she's, the, the lady said, listen to this, that there's still migrants arriving on Europe's coastline with the help of mafia and NGOs. And we need to fund, give more funding to the Libyan Coast Guard and uh, to the ships patrolling the Mediterranean seas. And these oh, are the my, people who talk about weapon authoritarian I mean, regimes. My God! I mean, yeah. uh, oh Lord! I mean, I, am, I, I, I do. I, I worry about. Uh, the direction that Europe is going. I really do. Yeah, now, people in the Greek government have openly called for breaking the law in this area and uh, yet Europe has the cheek to call about European values. And I mean, I think one of the other, I suppose, drivers of migration and asylum is climate change. And I think everybody all over Europe must be feeling it. Uh, now in the weather that we're having in Ireland now that we're having across Europe. I mean, we had a very desperate delegation of Italians in the Strasbourg plenary last week and then we were on a mission um, with our delegation to parts of Italy over the weekend and the drought and the heat and the drying up of major rivers and the melting of glaciers and avalanches and the impact on agriculture and on people being able to live in Europe you know, London is bracing itself for 40 degrees this weekend. Like, this is really beyond frightening. And this is Europe, but like, it's drivers beyond that that are driving people to leave but Africa. Just, it was, I was, the farmers at home in Ireland will be interested here. We met some farmers uh, out, uh, on, out in Italy at, last weekend. And uh, a few farmers told us uh, from, the, from their region in northern Italy, do you know how much rain they've got since Christmas? Three hours. Mm. Three hours of rain since Christmas. The rice crop has been decimated in northern Italy. Italy is the biggest producer of, of rice in Europe, believe it or not. And most of it is concentrated along the Po Basin. It, it kind of, it's, it's, uh, and it's, it's, the length, it's the width of Italy, right? And it goes about 30 kilometres north, 30 kilometres south of the river. And it's a huge rice area. They have lost over half the crop already. Mm. And it's not near harvest time. Mm. 
I can't keep going the way it's going. It's it's truly um, scary. And this is a huge driver of population moves as well. It's really frightening stuff. Um, so this is all we've had time for today. And this will be the last episode before the break of the parliament. And, and Kate's last episode, Kate joined us from UCC. So getting in a plug for old professor there yeah, earlier. Well, I'd, I hope our, our professors are listening to our, our podcast and I can assure them that the centre's over a real gem. And, uh, and as I've said before now, uh, for a 21-year-old, she's a serious bit of stuff. Absolutely. And uh, the whole of Cork should be proud of her. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Mick. Thank you, Claire. That's all we have time for today. All Goodbye. the best. Bye-bye.